On this episode, I'm in the room with pastor author Alec Rollins talking about how to pursue the presence of God. Welcome to In the Room, episode number eight. I'm Ryan Hughley, and I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. You can find me online at ryanhughley.com and also on Twitter and Instagram at at Ryan Hughley. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. If you're new to In the Room, the concept is simple. I want to bring you in the room for conversations with pastors, authors, and artists. We all have something to learn from everyone, so regardless of the guest or the subject matter, I hope you're going to find this helpful. This week, I'm in the room with Alec Rollins. He's the senior pastor of Westgate Chapel in Edmonds, Washington, and he's the author of a great new book called The Presence, Experiencing More of God. In our conversation, we discuss the defining marks of revival throughout church history, some things that keep us from experiencing God's manifest presence, and how to maintain balance in our theological convictions. Pastor Alec is a humble, helpful, and sweet man, so I really think you're going to enjoy this. So get settled, come on in the room for my conversation with Alec Rollins. Thank you, Alec, for being uh, on In the Room. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's good to be with you on the air. Uh, So I wanted to talk a little bit about your background, just in case there's anybody who's not familiar with you. I wasn't familiar with you before reading your book. Uh, And so tell me a little bit about where you're from originally, because you're not from the U.S. You were born in South Africa. So tell us about how you got from there to where you are now. No, actually, Ryan, I'm thrilled that uh, Tyndale took a, a chance on me because I really am a, uh, an unknown out here, but was born and raised in South Africa. My father's family was British. Uh, they came out in the late 1800s. My grandfather is a freehold farmer uh, and was a Quaker when they were in in England. Uh, my mom's side of the family comes from French Huguenots. Uh, so I was born and raised in South Africa in a pastor's home. My dad was a Baptist pastor for many of my early years growing up. So I grew up there and the family was always poor. We were a small church, poor family. So when it came to college, to time for, for college for me, uh, they couldn't afford to put me through school there in South Africa. And I got a mission scholarship to a Church of God school in Tennessee. So my first trip to the U.S. was on a freighter coming over with my trunk and my guitar uh, and uh, came over to go to school in 1966. And so your family then was still in South Africa at that point? Yes. Uh, oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. I was the first one to venture out from South Africa and come to this country. That must have been difficult. That doesn't happen as much now as I know as it used to, but that had to have been difficult leaving your family to that. I mean, how often did you see them when you were here? Uh almost never yeah. uh, because communication, because we don't have the, the Skype communications yeah. like we have today. So we had to make do with letters, airmail letters, which were maybe once a month, once every two weeks at the most. And it was hard. I, I turned 18 on the freighter coming over here and it was a hard transition, but I've always been somewhat high on change score and a little bit of adventuresome. And so for me, it was a great adventure. In hindsight now, I didn't realize the the strength of family that I was leaving behind when I came here on my own. So what was your path into ministry like? So you came out here at 18 to go to school and go then to, Bible school, to yeah. go to Bible school. And then yeah. I know you, you tell a bit of this story in your book, The Presence, but explain. So you're, you're the pastor now at Westgate Chapel in Edmonds, Washington. Uh, right. So explain a little bit about how you went from, you know, Bible college to now where you are in a, in a sizable church in the Pacific Northwest. Yes. Well, we start. I went to 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 this university in in uh, Tennessee for the first two years, a Bible school, only to learn that it was not accredited, which in South Africa was a concept I wasn't even familiar with. So, from from British standards, I had just wasted the first two years of my time over here. So, I was heading back to South Africa just to chalk that up as as two years of good experience. When I ran into a young lady, I was going to work in a church in Ohio for the summer to make enough money. To, to get back home. And in the process of working in this church, met, met a young lady. That changed my plans immediately for going back. And so I finished my undergraduate education uh, courting uh, Rita. We were married. I went on to graduate school uh, in, in, uh, in Ohio and then headed over to New York for our first ministry exposure in inner city ministry in East Harlem, New York. We went to San Diego where I was in 
associate pastor for seven years, Cedar Rapids, my first senior pastorate for seven years, and now Westgate Chapel for the last 27 years. Yeah, you've really run the gamut. Those are some very um, uh, extreme contacts that you've been in that are very different from one another. Very different. In fact, when I look at my life, sometimes it seems very sort of random in terms of the experiences and even the preparation. My first master's degree was in urban studies uh, and location theory had nothing to do with ministry. It was an interest I had at the time. But it's amazing how the Lord has used all those experiences to knit me together uniquely for the things he's called me to do. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because I, I I have experiences now at, at in my life where I I still don't understand exactly what the point is and how how they fit into God's larger plan, and so uh, how would you encourage um, you know pro- predominantly younger Christians and pastors who have experiences that they're trying to figure out like what what does this have to do with any how would you encourage them to kind of hold on to faith in the midst of that. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think as long as we stay in a, in a sensitive and intimate relationship with the Lord, he uses all of our experiences to, to, to knit us together in ways that make us each unique in our ministry perspective. I worked for a senior pastor in San Diego for seven years who was one of those straight, a marvelous guy, great teacher, yeah. but straight arrow, high school to Bible college, Bible college to seminary, seminary to associate pastor pastor to a senior. It was just, so when I was working for him, I I really felt inadequate because I'd done a little bit of radio. I'd done a little bit of television. I'd done inner city ministry in East Harlem, New York, drug programs. uh, And I thought, wow, I'm not set up to pastor quite like like he was, but when when I was installed in Cedar Rapids for for my first senior pastorate, the Lord has brought continuously over the last thirty something years all of those elements together, and at different times He's used them all, which just is sort of reassuring that He always begins with the end in mind. Yeah, I was just uh, reading through. Um Joseph's story in Genesis, uh, again, in my just personal devotions this week. And I was really struck this time at how, you know, Joseph obviously has experienced tremendous ups and downs in his own life and had to have had so many seasons where he didn't understand what God was doing. I love that constant promise that God was with him, but it was, I, 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 observed this time on how, whether it was working in Potiphar's house and then having so much responsibility in the jail, how both of those things, which there's no way Joseph could have understand what he was being prepared for, but that both of those really perfectly positioned him to, 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 to be second in command in all of Egypt. And that that's really true of, of all of our stories. Yeah. And he seemed to maintain a pliable, fairly pliable attitude through all of that, which is remarkable in the, in, in, in light of all of the challenges he had to go through to get there. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me a little bit about, uh, Westgate. You've been there. How long have you been there now? 27 years. Okay. And, uh, tell me a little bit about the church. It's a non-denominational church that was planted by a group of Scandinavians. There's a section of Seattle that is predominantly, at least was predominantly Scandinavian from the 50s, 1940s and 50s immigration. This church was planted in 1959 uh, in the town of Edmonds, which is a bedroom community to Seattle and right on the Puget Sound. It's like a little fishing village. Uh, And uh, the church started as a small chapel and retained that name down through the years, but has grown significantly and not 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 I'm not saying even under my leadership but when I got there they were running I think between a thousand and fourteen hundred uh, lots of evangelistic outreach uh, so really a fairly significant ministry in the life of the Northwest when we got here 27 years ago absolutely and you're also the president of an organization called Church Awakening yes and uh, tell me a little bit of I wasn't I wasn't familiar with that so tell me a little bit about what yeah. you guys do Well, about eight or 10 years ago now, I got personally troubled by the whole issue of the gay marriage controversy here in the state of Washington, Uh, troubled only to the, the, in the sense that the the church's response seemed to be largely political and mobilizing political machineries to deal with it. It seems to me like fundamentally a spiritual issue and that the church needed to, in humility, recognize it had failed the culture uh, and to be 
sort of humble servants to the community instead of dogmatic. And so when others were calling for, for political action, and, and I admire those who are engaged in that arena, but, but I felt like we needed a, a ministry out of Westgate, but separate from Westgate, that just called the pastors and churches in the state of Washington to prayer uh, with a view to spiritual awakening. And so that I've had, I've had sort of a lifelong interest in historical spiritual awakenings. What were the dynamics? What were some of the theological uh, 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 points to the revival? What was some of the, the, the history to it? And so it's been curious to me how God's moved in very different ways through very different uh, people from different theological perspectives to bring in the right season of time a spiritual awakening that ultimately draws people back to their first love for the Lord. That's the goal. And so church awakening is really just to speak to pastors uh, and churches in this region as a fellow uh, pastor uh, calling back, calling us back to prayer, repentance with a view to, to God awakening, which is his sovereign work. We don't manipulate him, but a view to God awakening his church once again to be salt and light in our, in our communities. Yeah, which that's a great segue into talking about your book because your book is very much along those same lines. It's called The Presence, Experiencing More of God. And so I'm curious, I'm, I'm always curious about this with authors, but what sparked your conviction that this book needed to be written? Was it along those same lines, the same time? Uh, but what sparked the, uh, the conviction that you needed to get this book out? It really, a lot of it came, Ryan, out of the, the conversations with pastors around the state because I would share some of the stories that are in the book, uh, both personal from my personal life as well as from history. I would share those stories in groups of pastors, and I've always been just tremendously blessed to be with groups of pastors from across theological spectrum. And when I would share with them and encourage them on the subject of God's presence, which seems to always be the common theme in every historical awakening, uh, and I would share the stories, they would say to me, wow, is there any way you could put those stories either in video or in, in book form so that we can share them with our congregation? So that was largely the impetus. Uh, I didn't feel like I had a whole lot to contribute. I didn't feel like I was a, a burgeoning author just waiting to be read by millions of people. But, but the pastors of the state of Washington were, were the ones that nudged me. You need to get this in print. So that was the beginning of the journey for me. Well, I'm glad they did because it really is a very, very helpful and uh, helpful book. And I think that you are respectfully wrong and that you did very much have something to contribute to the conversation because I found it hugely helpful. Uh, I am interesting. You, you've mentioned uh, studying some of the awakenings and or historical revivals that have happened. And you, you've mentioned that there were some, some, uh, some similar... Uh, characteristics uh, in all yes. of them. So, I mean, yeah. I know this is just kind of off the top of your head, but what are some of the yeah. similar, historically, some of the similarities that we see circumstantially that led to these awakenings and revivals? Yeah. Uh, Ryan, years ago when I was pastoring in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, I used to listen to a radio broadcast called Chapel of the Year. David Maines was at the helm of the ministry, and he would frequently talk to a gentleman named Leonard Ravenhill out of, uh, out of Dallas, Texas, who really made a life study. And in process of listening to that, they identified several things. First of all, their definition of revival, I think, is key, that it's the overwhelming sense of God's presence that falls, that falls powerfully on a Christian people who have become dead and lethargic in their lives, restoring to life those things that God intended to be normal. I love that definition love that. just as a starting place, because when we think of of revival, we tend to think of the paranormal or the exception or what a friend of mine out of Hong Kong calls this present weirdness. Yeah. And we forget we forget that revival are, are really God's jumper cables like the EMT cables on our heart to bring a dead heart back to life again. And then God intends that life. What is that normal life? Well, there are then seven characteristics that, that show up in almost every revival, the first of which is 
is that the word of God suddenly becomes very powerful in people's lives, and there's a deep sense of repentance, conviction of sin and repentance. So the first thing is that inside the church, there's a massive turning back to God because the Holy Spirit empowers his word and people, the people of God come to a place of conviction and repentance. Secondly, uh, worship becomes alive and new. And mm-hmm. a quick word about that, because I represent a different generation than you do. And we all, you know, we've all heard about worship wars. And, sure. But really, in the historical context, God has always revived the worship that is. It hasn't necessarily taken some innovation. Suddenly we move to guitars and drums or whatever. It's usually been God using the worship of that particular people. And suddenly though, it's it's invigorated by the Holy Spirit with a new sense of humility before God and a hunger. So worship comes alive. Brotherly love is the third thing that God restores relationships between people inside the church. So we have something finally to say outside of the church. Uh, A spirit of prayer comes back again inside the church so that prayer meetings in my dad's church after the revival that impacted them back in the 1960s when I was growing up that, that marked me the prayer meetings were as well attended as Sunday services. Yeah. So per, the spirit of prayer, both personal and corporate, is restored. Uh, and then everybody is deployed in their ministry gifts. I've lost count, Ryan, whether that's five or six now. I, I know, it's but good, people, whatever. That's fine. Just keep going. Thank you. People are engaged in ministry. You don't have to coax or coerce people out of the pew to be engaged in ministry inside and outside the church. And then finally, there's change in the culture that that people of God become salt and light once again, restored in their first love for the Lord. Now they're in a place to impact the culture with the love of God and not with a 10 pound hammer. That's fascinating. And that was very well done <laughs> to cover all Thank seven you. O's. That's, that's, that was really, really helpful. And, and so your, your book is moving toward that end in, in yes. many ways. And I, I really liked the way in your book, you talk about uh, three distinct ways in which the presence of God is experienced or known. You talked about the essential presence, the manifest presence, and the cultivated presence. And I was yes. wondering uh, if you could explain the difference between those three. Yes. Um, I learned this, Ryan, from a a gentleman in his 80s out of Wheaton, Illinois, by the name of Richard Owen Roberts. He and Henry Blackaby, I think, are the two leading uh, historians on on revival in the country today. And I spent a day with Richard Owen Roberts. Uh, He's Welsh in background and, of course, reflects a lot of the 1904 Welsh revival uh, that happened back then. But he wasn't there for it, but he's a student of it. He said essential presence is is what theologians would call God's omnipresence, that God's presence is essential for sustaining the universe. Like David said, if I go to the top of the mountain, you're there. If I go to the depths of the ocean, you're there. So in a, in, 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 in a very essential way, God's presence is everywhere already. But then manifest presence are those times when God shows up with the jumper cables for his for his people to bring uh, a dead body back to life again. And those are the historic accounts of God's sovereign breakthrough and often in dramatic ways when where you do get some of what seems to be weird at the time, even in some of the historical awakenings, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, uh, but it's God's jumper cables and he shows up dramatically to awaken his people. But then we don't have to sit around, and I love this about Richard Owen Roberts's definition of these three aspects of God's presence. We don't have to sit around all of our lives like the proverbial carrot at the end of the stick, waiting for those rare occasions where God shows up in a powerful and manifest way in revival. We can have God's cultivated presence, and he builds that that thought out of James 4, 8, where God says, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. And through a life 
oriented to the Lord, a heart of humility in pursuit of the Lord, we really believe that God will manifest his presence. Maybe it won't always be in dramatic ways, but he will make himself known to you in ways that invigorate your faith, stir you, humble you, give you a broken and contrite spirit before the Lord, and really lead you in what Jonathan Edwards calls the, the religion of the heart, where, where our affections are changed then out of that becomes comes a changed life when your heart has been changed by God. So I really do think, not that this book of mine is the be-all, end-all of things, but I really think that what's missing in American Christianity is we've gotten so cerebral in our approach to God uh, that we've lost in a lot of, in a lot of ways uh, the heart, God's touch on our hearts, which changes us from the inside out. Well, let's like, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. I, I grew up um, in the Pentecostal church. And so I've experienced a lot of what I would describe as over-emotionalism. Um, yeah. And at the same time, I know that many who are so overly cynical that they rob themselves of an opportunity to experience the presence of God more experientially and intimately. And so yes. I, I wonder how can we as Christians and ministry leavers navigate those two extremes so that we don't forfeit a genuine experience of the presence of God and at the same time don't live in this sort of weird over-emotionalism uh, uh, state. You know, what I'm, you, know, you know what I'm getting at? Like, how do we do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's the challenge that I faced in writing this book, that I would not so emphasize the experiential side of it, that I would alienate uh, the, my friends and brothers out there and sisters out there who, who, who pursue, I mean, the, 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 the notion of pursuing God with our reason, with our mind, is, is consistent with the Lord's call in Romans to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So it's not either or, but, but I would say it definitely has to be both and, and both extremes have to be moderated and, and, and carefully pastored by the leadership that you don't allow people to become experienced junkies where we're just going after the next high, which I think sometimes has characterized the Pentecostal movement. And I can say that because that's my background as well. So I'm self, self-evaluating here that we just go after the next high, and we live from high to high with little transformation going on in the meantime. But at the same time, the other extreme is to live so cerebrally that we think the Christian life is simply we need to understand better the next four rational principles for uh, having our lives change. And we need those principles, but we need the encounters with God that soften our hearts and make us receptive to God's word. That's, so I think both both have to you have to be careful with totally. both of those extremes. And what what are some of the things that you think keep us from experiencing God's manifest presence in in both our lives and our churches? I think sin, uh, unrepentant sin. I think we live in a. I mean, if if George Barna's research is is, is accurate, we have Christians in our churches including mine, mm -hmm. whose lives are not fundamentally different than the people of the world. So, so God's power is not, it's saving us. Dallas Willard used to talk about barcode Christianity, where we've got the notion, as long as we get the barcode changed, God will scan us into heaven, regardless if anything behind the barcode changes or not. And I think uh, I think that's affected our view of Christianity to the extent that there's very little transformation taking place. And I think God's intention is to get at the deepest level of our hearts and change us from the inside out. Um, I just finished reading a book uh, called Transforming, Transforming Moments by a Princeton theologian and philosopher, and he talks about from 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 Saul's encounter with the with the burnt with the blazing light on the road to Damascus, uh, all the way through to his own personal experiences. How God uses those experiences and encounters with God to fundamentally change something at the inside of our hearts that then leaks out into our actions and lifestyles. So, but I think since. I'm no, sorry. totally. No, no, no. I and I agree. Like, so you would you would agree that sin is the primary, the the primary uh, reality that would keep us from experiencing the presence of God. 
Yes, yes, Ryan, because sin grieves the Holy Spirit, Spirit right. unrepentant sin. Unre- right. If so, if you let something go on and on and on, and you're not going to deal with it, even after God's addressed it in your life through his word, that hardens our hearts to the and our ears to the voice of the Holy Spirit, and we're not going to experience God the further we get away from him. So what do you say to, because to, obviously you're, you know that there's a, a huge number, there's an entire theological tribe that would really struggle with the experiential aspect to the presence yeah. of God, period. So what do you, what do you say to skeptics who, who equate all um, tangible experiences of, of the presence of God and sort of write that all off as emotion? Or um, what do you say to people that, uh, that would maybe you know, disagree with you on that. Yes. I would say not that everything can be proved through apologetics, but I would say that some of the research being done now, both in the secular world in terms of of where where are the basic motivators in our lives? And uh, James K.A. Smith, who's a philosopher in residence at um, I'm trying to think of the name of the of the university now in the Midwest where he is. Calvin, Calvin, uh, no, anyhow, Calvin okay. College, I think it is. Yeah. He says he says that 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 contrary to the to the to the common notion that we are what we think, we've been influenced in American Christian Western Christianity by the old uh, axioms of Descartes that we are what we think. So we all we feel like is if we just if we just generate more material for the American Christian that they take in cerebrally, that they're going to be changed. But but in reality, we are what we love, that we're moved much more by what our passions dispose us to than, than what we think. And so I would say to that skeptic that some of the research, both scripturally and outside of scripture, is indicating that there are a seat, that there's a seat of emotion that is at a deeper level than simply our thinking and rational faculties that we need to give consideration to and not just rule them out. And they've been, face it, our emotions have been suspect for the last thousand years. Sure. Um, so I, I understand the battle that, that I'm facing and the challenge to try to communicate this notion. But I think scripturally as well, when you look through people's encounters with God, it was their encounter with God that transformed them and sent them on God's mission. Yeah. Moses' encounter on the with the burning bush, he didn't ever have another burning bush experience, but it changed him forever and sent him off on God's mission to deliver the people of God. Absolutely. We'll be back in the room shortly, but first I want to ask a favor. Can you jump over to iTunes when you have a second and leave me a review about how much you love in the room? Unless you hate it, and then don't worry about a review at all, just email me or something. Your reviews help us increase our visibility on iTunes. And as always, if you like this episode, you can help spread the word by sharing the link on social media. Thanks so much for your support, and now back to the conversation. Um, <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit about... Um, the common experience that all Christians have at some point, if you've followed God for more than 12 seconds, you, you know that uh, our spiritual lives have ups and downs. And every Christian knows what it is to kind of go through one of those desert experiences where they feel far from God, or yeah. as if God is playing uh, hard to get if you will. And so I I wonder how, how would you encourage someone that is experiencing that and feels like God's playing hard to get, uh, or they're discouraged because God feels far. How how do you encourage Christians? Cause we're all going to walk through that. Yes, absolutely. We're all going to experience that. I believe there's there's a book that was that was retranslated into readable English uh, called The Christian in Complete Armor by William Gurnall. I think it's a 17th century classic. And they say in there that God will intentionally not withhold his presence, but it feels like he's withholding his presence for seasons in our lives. And they believed, the the Puritans believed that he was doing two things. One, he was he was reminding us that we're not God, he is. And secondly, he's, he's increasing our hunger for him. And in the Song of Solomon, chapter four, uh, where the beloved is, is, many believe, characteristic of God's love for us, the, the, the beloved comes knocking on the door of the maiden. And she says, uh, when he knocks on the door, I've already 
put my pajamas on and, I, and I'm in bed. And so he keeps knocking. And so finally it says she stirs herself to get up and get dressed. But when she gets to the door, she smells the lingering myrrh off of his hand. She smells the essence of his presence, but he's gone. So she goes out the door and goes looking for him. And she goes to the watchman in the night and she says, have you seen my beloved? If you've seen him, please tell him I'm looking for him. It's a marvelous picture, I think, of what God does in those desert seasons when he hasn't abandoned us, but is actually, I think, teasing out of us, kind of like a parent playing hide and seek when the child, the child delights to be found. And when, when they're found, they, the, the first thing out of our girls' mouths were, let's do that again, dad. Yeah. And I think the father, I think, withholds his presence, not to be mean to us uh-huh. but ch- or chastise us, but to tease out of us a greater love that's going to fundamentally change us. Yeah, I think in, in addition, I, you hear, uh, I've, as a pastor, I hear a lot of people bemoaning the fact that God feels far, but uh, the more that you kind of probe and dig and ask questions, you realize that there's really not a whole lot by way of pursuit maybe sometimes happening in their life. Yeah. And so yes. there, there seems to be uh, an aspect of spiritual laziness. Uh, I think yes. that is common amongst many Christians in our culture. Um, and I think that we're so used to getting what we want when we want it, that when, when God is not controllable in that yes. fashion, that we find ourselves very frustrated. So I'm, I'm just curious how you think the immediacy of our culture, how everything happens quickly, exactly how we want, how do you think that's impacted yeah. our experience of the presence of God? Oh, I think, I think it definitely has a, ne- has had a negative impact on our, on our Christian life period, because there are so many distractions and life is lived at such a frenetic pace right now for all of us, um, that having the time necessary to devote to the Lord, and I'm not talking about some stodgy kind of family devotions notion, but just having a discipline in our lives to to pursue God, which which in itself lays into our lives those tools or building materials that the Holy Spirit uses to create godliness in all of us are missed in a culture that is accustomed to instantaneous responses. And I think sometimes our services um, are even are even help uh, don't help in that process because we try to create the presence of God with some manipulated worship experience and I'm not saying this is always true in every case but but we want God has to move quickly in the first 15 minutes because that's the part devoted to worship before we go on with our service and people leave the service feeling like the church the pastors either did a good job to deliver God to them or a bad job and we all forget the fact that the pursuit of God is a lifelong seven days a week process of accessibility to God. Um, and everything in our lives today mitigates against that. And what do you think are, uh, we're getting ready to lead our church through um, an intensive 40 day season of prayer and fasting. And, uh, and honestly, I've been, I've been really moved by, by your book and uh, other books along the same vein, Jim Cimbala's book, um, yes. Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. That's what it, yes, that, that was, what that was called, it. right? Just like yeah. blown away by that book and yeah. have this deep longing in my own heart. I don't, I don't want to spend my whole life in ministry and not experience a move of God, if that makes yeah. sense. Yes. And so what, what, as we're getting ready, this is approaching for us right around the Easter season. What advice would you give us and others who are leading churches and desire to lead their churches through a, a season of like this? Like what are some ways that pastors and ministry leaders can help foster this pursuit and uh, experience of God's presence? Yeah. I think prayer is an incredibly important place to start, but trying to raise up a congregation of people who capture that vision and are willing to devote themselves to it is something that only has to be done by the Holy Spirit. We can't guilt them into it. We can't coerce them into it. When I was at West, when I first got to Westgate Chapel, there was not a huge, other than about 40 people who met every morning for prayer, there was not a huge prayer emphasis. And so I tried in my own strength in the first four years I was there to start prayer meetings, and they they would always start with a great deal of enthusiasm and then fizzle out within six weeks. 
and I'd feel like a failure and the congregation would feel like a failure. And I got to a place of desperation that as I look back, Ryan, I think probably began in me a level of desperation like you've just articulated. Uh, God, I don't want to go any further. I'm weary of trying to crank out ministry. I'm weary of trying to be relevant all the time. I'm weary of trying to be to beat the guys down the street at innovation. And so, and, and I'm in favor of all of those things, being relevant, uh, having innovation, not opposed to those. But, but Lord, please, if you don't do something here, I would honestly rather do something else than pastor. Right. Absolutely. Um, and I think it was in response to that sort of level of desperation in me that in 92 in Westgate Chapel, God broke through in a Sunday service that, that can, I, I can only describe as it, his presence was so intense, I just had to get out of the way. Um, and the, the, the Sunday service, we didn't preach. We didn't have an offering. That tells you how serious we were. <laughs> That's pretty serious. <laughs> and and uh, we went on and just sort of re- repetitive altar calls with people coming forward to repent. And I think in hindsight, and I'm not saying I was the only one, I think there was a core of 40 people that were determined that we had to have God, nothing less, nothing more. And um, and I think in response to them and the de- level of desperation in me, God showed up. It's the same thing that happened in, in Cedar Rapids, only in Cedar Rapids, it wasn't a a corporate prayer meeting. It was an early morning prayer meeting, but that was on, and it worked. We had about 75, and I guess that's where I'm going with the answer, and I'm sorry if it's it's rambling. No, but it's I think I think a pastor is so alone in this pursuit that unless the pastor and the Lord can gather around him a core of people who see the vision and step into it, Mathematically, and I don't know what this magical number proportion is, but a, a significant enough core that mathematically they can influence the rest of the people. When when God started moving in Cedar Rapids, we were we had about 350 people in the congregation, and 75 responded to the early morning call to prayer. And Cedar Rapids is a small enough community that you could you could get to a six o'clock prayer meeting in the morning five days a week and still make it to work in time. So we had a good so. So 75, whatever that mathematical ratio is, 75 to 350, those 75 people came out of those early per meetings when, when they were started with such a sense of expectation that their faith uh, had a permeative effect on the 350. And, and, and you guys soon, were, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but you guys were meeting Monday through Friday, five days a week at 6 a.m. with 75 people. Those were daily prayer meetings you were those doing. Those were daily prayer meetings. Wow. And, and I think, and it was just something the Lord quickened in my heart through a graduate course I took where I realized I was a I was a prayerless pastor. And in fact, after I'd taken that graduate course, uh, I was so convicted that that next Sunday, even though I'd had a sermon prepared, the Lord would not let me preach that sermon. All I was able to do is get up to the congregation and tell them I'd been there two and a half years. And I said, I've been a prayerless pastor. I've prayed for sermon prep. Lord, help me figure this text out. Lord, bless this. Lord, bless that. But I did not have a personal prayer life. And I said, the Lord's told me that if we would be serious in our pursuit of him, he's going to blow us away with what he wants to do here. And that, and so I said, so tomorrow morning, here's what it's going to be here. Tomorrow morning, I'm, I'll be here at seven o'clock, six o'clock. How many of you will join me? And from the get-go, 75, and for the next seven years that I, were there, I was there, and the church went from 350 to 1,500 people in the short span of time. We had to move out to, to get to use the high school. And I, and I hate using numbers, Ryan, because by today's standards, what's 1,500? We got churches in the Seattle area that are 10, 12,000. So, so I hate pastors that throw numbers around. But I say it only to say in 18 months, we went from 350 to 750. And then another year to 1,200, 1,300, we had to build a new building just because we had no place else to go, not because we were looking to grandstand. Um, and it was all because... God began touching people. God's presence showed up in the services. People were getting saved every Sunday. And it came as a result of prayer. At Westgate, it came about totally differently. And there, everything I tried to start failed for the first four years. And I was beginning to feel like I'd made a serious mistake even coming here when God showed up in a Sunday service. Frankly, my dad had just died. This will 
probably freak your your listeners out. But my dad had just died uh-huh. that July, and I couldn't help but wonder if he'd just gone straight to the throne and said, hey, my boy in Seattle needs some help, because it was August of that same summer, and we had a breakthrough that changed the church Really, we're in staff retreat now in a staff prayer retreat asking the Lord about what does he have for us in 2015. And that that one Sunday changed the culture, the complexion, the racial makeup, changed everything in Westgate. And we're not the fastest growing church. We're not the biggest church. We're, you know, but but God shows up and does amazing things. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that, <clears throat> yeah, no, nothing's worse than a pastor that only talks about numbers. That's pretty painful to listen to. And numbers are not the only indicator, but they are an indicator. Uh, and so uh, I think that, you know, as one amongst many other evidences that you acknowledge, I think that that's really amazing. Can you tell me like about these, we've, we've had similar experiences at redemption where we've <clears throat> had prayer meetings and uh, the first one's phenomenal, you know, 25% yeah. of the church shows up. And then by yep. the fourth one, it's like me and the other guys we pay to be here. And yeah. so what are your prayer meeting? And I get there's heart things that have to happen for sure. But can you just tell me a little bit about what your prayer meetings consisted of? How did you structure yeah. them? What did you, what did, what did you, what were you doing? Yeah, we, we told the congregation that we, we were in a place where we just needed God, nothing more, nothing less. So we did, we purposed, we would not have teaching in those prayer meetings. We would not have uh, any structured, uh, prepared materials. Now, this is not, again, not to be weird or, or I know sometimes, you know, the Holy Spirit is treated like a labor-saving device. Like, we don't have to prepare, prepare for anything. We just right. trust the Holy Spirit. So, this was not that. It was as much anything, a discipline for me, that the Lord wanted me to go into those prayer meetings without anything prepared, but just to trust him and follow him. Because I think sometimes, Ryan, we as pastors can get so dependent on our preparation, good as it is and important as it is, that we rely on our preparation and not what the Holy Spirit's saying in the moment. And so, to, to again, to answer your your short question, long way around. No. Right now, we go in with with worship that maybe the worship band and the worship pastor has, has put some songs together, and we just spend probably twenty minutes in worship. And a lot of sometimes the Lord will give me some inkling as to what we're supposed to pray for and how it's supposed to go. A lot of times, eighty percent of the time, the direction doesn't come to me or the pastor who's leading the prayer meeting until we're in the context of worship. And then we'll get that sense of direction from the Lord. Uh, this last Tuesday night, for example, and we, for the last 22 years, we've averaged anywhere from 350 to 500 in prayer meeting. So it's about 25% wow. of the congregation. And But let me be quick to say, Ryan, it has an ebb and a flow. There are times when they're flat and there's no life there and it's hard work. And I have to remind the congregation, hey, don't just come when great things are going on. We've got to show, you know, we got to really show the Lord we're serious about him when it's hard work as well as when it's mountaintop. So there's been ebb and flow to that, uh, but it actually has been the Lord that has sustained it. Um, and it, it, and then, so then we pray. Sometimes it's in small groups. Sometimes it's, it's out loud and we'll encourage people to pray in sort of in a concert way with everybody praying at a conversational level. But what we, what I challenge people to not do is to just have long periods of silence. I said, we can do that at home. Uh, and that's a killer for a prayer meeting. Actually, in in Charles Finney's book, uh, Revival Lectures, he has a whole chapter on prayer meetings that are very pertinent. They need to be adapted for today's culture, but are very pertinent and important for keeping life in prayer meetings. But one more thing, if I may, and yeah. please let me know if we're going over No, time. you're good. After a year of our prayer meetings, we felt that same begin at at, at C- in Seattle. We felt that same sort of letdown, and I called Jim Simbla, who'd become a friend by then, uh, and I said to Jim, "Jim, I'm I'm nervous about how we how we maintain a sense of urgency." In our prayer meeting, I can't generate that, and we're, it feels like we're losing that sense of urgency before the Lord. Um, and he said, Alec, I wouldn't want to pastor for a second where you are compared to where I am. He said, because – and right now, I think they have almost 4,000 people in their Tuesday night prayer meeting. And he said to me, he said, Alec, he said, we have – 
we, we just had to open a nursery for AIDS babies. He said, we get people working in our congregation, coming into our services every Sunday who are bound by crack and heroin. He said, no cute sermon illustrations and PowerPoint slides and, and, and little worship set is going to set them free. We have to have God. And so because we live in this every day, the congregation knows how desperate we are for God. He said, I don't have to generate that. It's in our environment. Well, yeah. in Seattle <laughs> – we, we're not that desperate. We don't have that sense. I'm, I'm in a bedroom community and I can't, I can't generate urgency. You know, I can't how hang Al Qaeda an imminent threat of Al Qaeda over sure. the congregation. It'd be so phony to do that. So I have to rely on the Holy Spirit. And one of the reasons we do three prayer retreats with our pastors is we devote them mostly to time in the word and to prayer together because we have to, we have to rely on the Holy Spirit to keep the spirit of prayer alive in Westgate because we don't have that kind of urgency that is prevalent in an inner city environment. So I'm sorry I've taken so long to answer no, that No, no, that's really, really helpful. I appreciate it. Uh, aside from your own, obviously, what are, what are other books that you would recommend that people read that want to press in more on this issue? Well, some of the more one of the more recently written books would be uh, Jim Cimbala's uh, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, although that's a few years old now. Uh, but I think any of Jim Cimbala's books, his heart, Ryan, I, I just I get so energized when I'm there visiting just by the heart of the congregation. It's a heart of humility. I don't know how much you've had a chance to be around them. There, there's no grandstanding. All. There's no grandstanding. There's no sense of, wow, look how big we are. Uh, it's just it's a marvelous heart of humility that permeates the whole congregation and is very life giving when you visit there. So I'd say any of Jim Simbler's books. Then I would say some of the classics, R.A. Torrey's book on the power of Prayer is as relevant today as it was back in the early 1900s when he when he wrote it. Um, Reese Howe's Intercessor is is another uh, old classic, uh, and and it, it sort of. And then there's a Southern Baptist pastor, uh, Ronnie Floyd, who's just taken over the helm of the Southern Baptist denomination, who's calling Southern Baptist to revival. And he wrote a book. I don't remember the title. I'm sorry. But he wrote a book a couple of years ago now on prayer and fasting because he's based his ministry in Lafayette, um, uh, Arkansas, on – prayer and fasting. So there are unfortunately few examples today. You have to go back to the classics yeah. to, to catch some of the passion for prayer. Well, I want the question I want to close with has to do uh, with something that I sense in you personally, both in our conversation now, but also in reading your book. You strike me as a very, um, as very balanced and biblically saturated uh, in your convictions. And most people, it seems like in our day, are not very balanced. I think that we want to ignore the tensions that exist in the Bible, and it's just easier to pick one side of the fence and ignore the other. And so you've mentioned, even in our conversation, really enjoying being influenced and surrounded by a variety of theological spectrums. I mean, my goodness, you uh, grew up Pentecostal or still, I, I'm not sure if you're still, uh, yes. you're non-denominational, still Pentecostal, yes. but you yes. keep mentioning Puritans and reformers. And then typically like, I mean, I, you just, th- that's not always two tribes that mix well. So yes. uh, it's a major value for me personally, because I too have had a very diverse background and it's a hope of in the room, the podcast, I want to bring together people of varying convictions and to be able to talk about what matters most. But just personally, how how and why are you balanced? Why do you value that? Are there any keys that you would recommend for us to be able to pursue that in our lives personally? Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you. Thanks for asking that. I think a lot of it comes from being raised in the mission field. Uh, when you're raised in a mission field, uh, the force of circumstance puts you together with people with whom you might have a theological disagreement, but you realize there are fundamentals that that are non-negotiables for for all of you. And as long as you can agree on the agree on the non-negotiables, the other things won't divide you. So some of that I think in me comes from being raised in the mission field. My dad 
became Pentecostalized when the revival came in his church when I was about nine years old. Before that, he'd been a Baptist pastor. So we had both of those perspectives, but dad's best friend was a Zulu Baptist pastor named <laughs> Pastor Duma, who who was so powerfully used in healing that people used to take the steamer down from England to come and have him pray for them. And it was not in great, huge healing meetings, but in the privacy of his home. They'd come to his humble home and he would pray for them and God seemed to favor Pastor Duma in healing. So all of this influences a young person growing up to see how God uses all of these. And then my pursuit of revival, frankly, has has sort of even ex- expanded that because when you read the history of Jonathan Edwards, interestingly, Ryan, in his in in a, in a biography written of him recently by Ian Murray, published out of Scotland, he he attributes the revival in New England to a return to the great Reformation themes of the of the past, and yet across the Atlantic, God was blessing Jonathan Edwards in a similar way, and at the very same time in history to Jonathan Edwards, and John Wesley was anything but a return to the grand old Reformation themes of the past. So there's God blessing people who are theologically diverse, and that doesn't seem to slow God down or bother him. Uh, and and in many ways, uh, Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley conversed, as did Wesley and Whitfield, who were had very different views of, of uh, from a theological perspective. So God seems to honor our theological distinctives, which means I need to honor them in the Lutheran or Baptist or Presbyterian brothers that I rub shoulders with in the state of Washington and not not uh, deride them. But at the same time, when God shows up in power, the, the, the latest great revival that I'm aware of historically was the 1949 revival in the Hebrides Islands that I reference in my book. And I went there and interviewed some people who are still alive who experienced that revival, and they were Presbyterians yeah. and are very Calvinistic in their theology, and yet God poured out his blessing and his revival presence on them. So when you see that historically, it just reinforces in me, how can I make dividing distinctions when God doesn't seem to. Yeah, I love that. That 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 comment that you just made about if God is going to honor and does clearly honor our theological distinctives then so should we. I think that that's yes. so that is a um that is in many ways one of a, a couple of very important values to me in having conversations like this. And so yeah. I want to thank you so much for your book. It is it is excellent. And uh, very well written, very very balanced, saturated with scripture. Uh, you you, it's a it, it is not a task that I would envy you <laughs> trying to write on something that is in many ways such a polarizing topic. And I thought you navigated those waters very well. And I'm thank so you, thankful for for your example. So thanks so much for coming on thank in the room, Ryan. Thank you for having me on the program, and I hope our paths cross again. Absolutely, thank you. I pray that when I follow Jesus as long as Pastor Alec, I'm still as desperate for God's presence as he is. It's so important to have people in our lives that leave us wanting to be more like Jesus. And Pastor Alec is one of those guys. So make sure you pick up his new book, The Presence. Don't forget to stop by my blog, ryanhugley.com and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at ryanhugley. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. We'll be back next week with episode number nine in my conversation with J.R. Vassar. We're talking about his new book, Glory Hunger, God, the Gospel, and Our Quest for for something more. Until then, it's an honor to learn with you. I love you and thanks for listening.